0: Last week we started a new sermon series titled "Godlike," looking at the reality that God in creating us has given us some of his own attributes. But we're going to look at the attributes that we don't often talk about, the B-sides, if you will. Last week we saw that God is a long-suffering God. He is patient and gentle with us in the face of our, our failure and calls us to be the same way Towards others. In fact, he enables us and changes us to be gentle and to be consistent in the face of others' failures. This morning, we're going to look at an attribute that is closely connected with that. We're going to look at anger. So buckle up, and before we begin, let me remind you that this sermon is not for the person sitting next to you. It's for you. Uh, as we hear these passages read, uh, let me ask you this question. Uh, Is it okay that God is angry? That should have a simple answer. I'm just kidding. But let's give ear to the reading of God's word. A reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, and Ephesians, chapter 4. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, this morning, as we come and hear from your word, from you, as you speak to us through your word, I ask that you would help us uh, to remain aware of our hearts. Help us not to tune out, to excuse our actions and our thoughts. Help us instead to sit in the reality of who we are, our failures, our successes. Help us to see that you welcome us just as we are, knowing how much and how often we failed, and you welcome us in the name of Jesus, and you change us to be more like him. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain, and I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Mrs. Turpin is the main character of Flannery O'Connor's short story titled, Revelation. In the story Mrs. Turpin is taking her husband Claude to the doctors and they're sitting in the waiting room that is packed full of people that Mrs. Turpin cannot stand. Dirty, unkept, low, both in status and in demeanor. And the real trouble for Mrs. Turpin begins when she strikes up a conversation with a pleasant woman sitting across the way with her college-aged daughter named Mary Grace. Now, Flannery O'Connor writes this conversation from two perspectives. The first is what is coming out of Mrs. Turpin's mouth. She begins to laud the characteristics of good humans, which, conveniently, she has all of. She is talking about her own disposition, her own hopes, her own socioeconomic status, her own attitude, her own skin color, her own understanding of the world. The other perspective that we get are her inner thoughts. We're privy to how she is judging everyone else in the room, their responses to her, their appearance, their ethnicity, using some rather vulgar racial slurs. And just as Mrs. Turpin announces to the waiting room that if she's one thing, it's grateful, grateful that she isn't someone else, born in a different place with different things a textbook comes flying across the doctor's waiting room and hits her square in the face. See, Mary Grace, this young woman, has been sitting there listening to this conversation, listening to this woman go on and on about herself with her own anger boiling just below the surface until Mary Grace couldn't take it anymore. She throws the book, she jumps across the waiting room and attacks this woman until she is subdued and eventually sedated. And her last words to Mrs. Turpin are this, Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. Now I suspect that many of us live our daily lives like Mary Grace, pre-book throw. Observing the world around us, simmering with frustration or disappointment or anger, whatever negative emotion you want to put in there, just below the surface trying to hold it in, trying to let that feeling fade away. And every now and then, it might have come out, and we begin to feel embarrassed, ashamed. We know that it's ugly, not just the eruption, but the stewing about it, the anger itself. And so, when we hear Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 say these things about anger, our natural inclination is to think, I shouldn't be getting angry. It's wrong for me to get angry. I just can't let myself go there again. And yet, shouldn't we be getting angry at a character like Mrs. Turpin? Eviscerating the hearts of people around her with her words, using incredibly judgmental and very vulgar racial slurs? Shouldn't that make us angry? I mean, the Apostle Paul in this passage from Ephesians says, you can get angry and not sin. So what is it? Should I be angry? Should I not be angry? I think this is actually the biggest problem that we have when it comes to dealing with anger. We don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to think about it, how to respond to it, and how to use it. Is it right or is it wrong? When is it right? This whole conversation starts with the reality that God has created in us the capacity to mirror his anger. Yes, God gets angry. His anger always is an accurate judgment of an immoral act or an immoral person. Always accurate. And his response is always morally correct. However, for us, because of our sin, because of the way that we twist and manipulate things, more often than not, our anger either finds its roots in a sinful judgment of others, a self-righteous, self-protective judgment, or it results in a sinful response. And no matter how often you tell yourself it's okay, no matter how many good arguments you make to prove that your anger is righteous and justified, most likely it's not. So what does it look like for us to mirror God's anger? How can we get angry like God gets angry? Maybe the bigger question is, how can Jesus reshape our experience and our response to anger? These two passages tell us that godly anger should always lead to life so that we should prioritize reconciliation and you should start. Anger should lead to life so we should prioritize reconciliation and you should start. We're going to start by looking at the reality that anger should lead to life. God gets angry. And if you're reading the Old Testament histories, it seems like he gets angry a lot. But the key to understand and to note is that God's anger is always kindled against actions, words, or people who disrespect or damage life. Let me say that again because that's really important. God's anger is always kindled against actions, words, or people who disrespect or damage life especially when those things are leading people away from God and the true fullness of life that he has to offer, right? We're talking about spiritual life, which we can only find from God himself. God gets angry when people are led away from him. So in the Old Testament, we see God's anger arise against the leaders of Israel when they put up idols for the rest of Israel to worship. Right, they are encouraging God's people to worship an Asherah pole or a golden calf instead of worshiping the one true living God who desires to be with his people. They're leading them away. In the New Testament, Jesus, who is God, gets angry with the Pharisees and the scribes who are encouraging the Jews to follow their example and their teaching, which leads them to a self-sufficient, legalistic life where dependence upon God is completely unnecessary. He's angry because they're leading people away from God. right? And God's response to ancient Israel and Jesus' response to the Pharisees and scribes have the same end goal, repentance. The frustrated and angry actions of God in the Old Testament and Jesus as God in the New Testament show us that God's anger always leads to people repenting. That's the goal returning to the source of life, to God himself. But not us, not me. Our anger arises often because we feel injured. We are maybe inconvenienced. And to be honest, the end goal of our anger is often to get even, to injure that offending person equally, if not exponentially more so. Jesus tells us this in the, ma- in the passage from Matthew 5. This is one of the reasons that he equates these types of angry responses to murder, to show us that they have the same effect. Our anger, the anger to which we are prone to respond is usually self-righteous, self-protective. Even if it never hurts the other person, it often leads us away from God, damaging our own hearts. That's why I love this quote that I printed in the front of your bulletin. It says, anger can be hot or it can be cold. Both are violent and both can kill. I heard this at a church planting training years and years ago by a church planter's wife. And as soon as she said it, I knew she was describing me perfectly. And the more I think about it, the more that I understand that's why we use such incredibly violent language to talk about our angry reactions, right? We talk about having an icy glare, shooting daggers with our eyes. There's no actual action going on there, but it's still incredibly violent. Or we say things like, you just bit somebody's head off, or you blew up on somebody. Very violent imagery. This is how our anger affects other people and affects ourselves. In violence, leading to murder. Not physical murder, but emotional and spiritual murder. But we convince ourselves that our anger is justified, that it is righteous, right? We look at the actions of the other person and we tell ourselves they deserve what they're getting, whether it's the cold shoulder or a stern lecture. We convince ourselves that our response is righteous and we need to stop. We need to stop trying to justify our anger and to see it for what it really is. It's the hope that our response will prove the other person wrong, will injure the other person in the same way that we've been injured. We're seeking the death of someone else, personally, relationally, emotionally, maybe even spiritually. How in the world can anger lead to life? How can we have godly anger that leads others to life? Well, what we see in this passage is that we have to prioritize Reconciliation. Godly anger re- leads to life, so we should prioritize reconciliation. Now, I want you to listen carefully because this is really important. I'm convinced that many of us handle anger very differently. Instead of getting it out and dealing with it and engaging with the other person, we stew for a while, right? Maybe because we don't know how to handle it, maybe because we're not sure that we're right or not. Maybe because getting angry actually feels really shameful, because showing our anger makes us feel weak. So instead of getting it out and dealing with it, instead what happens is we just ignore that person for a little bit. We ghost them. We ice them out for some period of time. Maybe we try to ice them out forever, but you know that anger doesn't go away. It just sits inside and stews, eating at us internally until someone else, not associated with this other interaction that made us angry, asks, what's wrong with you? And that's when this sentence, well, let me tell you what so-and-so did, feels relieving. It feels like it's helpful. But it's not. It is sinful, and it leads to death. Instead, godly anger should prioritize reconciliation we see this in what jesus says in matthew chapter 5 verse 23 he says if you're offering a gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you leave your gift there before the altar and go be reconciled to your brother jesus says resolving your anger being reconciled with someone else is so important that you should put it above worshiping god that's what jesus says worshiping god really really good thing being reconciled to someone else you're angry with, even better thing. That's amazing. I think if we actually took Jesus at his word and elevated reconciliation to the place he holds it at, none of us would be in here right now. We'd be out in the courtyard apologizing and forgiving each other all morning. Paul, the apostle Paul, agrees with Jesus. Always a good thing to do, agree with Jesus, especially if you're an apostle. Here in Ephesians, he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So is Paul here saying that you need to continue the fight all night until you resolve it before you go to sleep? Is he saying that you need to call your boss before you fall asleep in order to tell him how, you've hurt, how he's hurt your feelings? Should you write an email at 11 59, 59 and make sure you send it before it turns 12 just to make sure you get it in there? maybe i don't think paul is giving us a specific time frame for which we need to resolve our anger but what he is saying is don't let it fester don't let it just sit and assume it's going to take care of itself don't let the sun go down instead deal with it if you just let it sit if you just let it fester you're giving the devil an opportunity in that other person to continue hurting other people sure But more often than not, you're giving the devil an opportunity in your own heart. So, if you've been at grace a while, you know that I am a self righteous person. That's one of my biggest problems. I judge other people a lot. And so, one of the ways I try to deal with that judgmentalism, that anger when other people disappoint me, when I disappoint myself, is by saying, I'm just going to take it. I'm not going to say anything about it. I'm just going to be wounded, and I'm going to suppress it, and I'm going to get over it. I don't want to bring it up, I don't want to cause a problem. I'm just going to be the bigger person and take it. Well, this past week, as I was paying attention to how I was responding to my wife and my children, I found myself saying things like this. All day, this is how you have behaved. You always do stuff like this. I'm not worried about this one action. I'm worried about the heart behind the pattern, what I see over and over again. My goodness, it must be terrible to live with me sometimes. See, when I think that I'm actually quelling anger, what I'm doing is I'm building up a list of offenses to hold against someone else. I think that I'm doing something good by letting it just be, by not addressing it. And instead what's happening is I'm creating a rap sheet for the other person. And as soon as they bring up something I've done wrong, as soon as it gets too much for me to handle, I let loose with offense one, and two, and three, and four. And that's not loving. That's not Christ-like. That is giving the devil an opportunity. Paul and Jesus here both say, be reconciled quickly. But why reconciliation? Why is that a priority? Why can't instead we just focus on letting things go? Why do we need to be reconciled? Well, Because it's only in reconciliation that we can experience the fullness of life. Reconciliation was Jesus' business while he was here on earth. Jesus took on flesh, and he lived a perfect life that you could not live. And he died the death you deserve to die, and he rose again from the dead in order to set you free from the penalty of your own sin. That's one of the ways that we see salvation talked about in Scripture. Dead things, dead people being brought back to life. That salvation is only found in the blood of Jesus. Another way that Jesus' work is described in the scriptures is reconciling us to God. By taking our sin upon himself on the cross, he fixes our broken relationship and reconciles us with our creator, with God. So, what we see literally is that reconciliation and life go hand in hand. It's only in the reconciliation that Jesus brings to us that we can experience this new life. And we get to experience that now by reconciling ourselves to others. Right? Resolving our anger, reconciling with another person is a life giving, life saving event. That's great, Stephen, you might say, but you don't know how I've been hurt. You don't understand what that person did to me. If they want this newness of life, if they want to experience reconciliation, they're going to have to come to me. Actually, what these two passages say is, you start. Godly anger always leads to life. Prioritize reconciliation, you start. Notice who is responsible in Jesus' estimation to begin this process of reconciliation in Matthew 5. If your brother has something against you, right? So you are the offending party. You've done something wrong. You are the one that needs to go and apologize. But wait. A couple chapters later in Matthew 18, the famous passage regarding conflict resolution. Jesus says this, Matthew 18, 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So here, Jesus says that you are the injured party, um, and it's your responsibility to start the reconciliation process. Wait, so Matthew 5, it's the offended party, or offending party. Matthew 18, it's the offended party. Which is which? Well, hopefully, you caught the common denominator of both passages. You. You are responsible to start the reconciliation process. See, followers of Jesus are those to whom full new life has been given. You are the bearers of full new life, and we are called to live as life givers. You are the one who should go and repent, you are the one who should go and give someone the opportunity to repent. You should start the reconciliation process. And while we're at it, notice how Jesus never says anything about the other person's actions at all. He's only concerned with your anger, with your words, with your thoughts. Neither does the Apostle Paul. He's talking about your anger. He says the devil will gain an opportunity in your heart. So you start and start with you. Our anger should first settle on the sin in our own hearts, right? If you find yourself getting angry, the first question that you should ask is this, what have I done to create this conflict? Now, that might seem unfair. That might seem unfair, particularly when you are hurting, when you've been offended, when someone has cut you out, Whatever, whatever's happened, it might seem unfair for me to say, you should ask what you've done to cause this problem, but think of it like a giant flow chart. Start with that question. What have I done to cause this problem? If the answer is anything at all, any sin, any phrase, anything that you've done, you have a great opportunity to repent. All the way to the bottom where repentance is, right? What have I done to cause this problem? Repent. If the answer is nothing, the next question is, what have you done in response to the other person's actions? If the answer is anything at all, any kind of comment, any kind of snipe back, any kind of dart, you know, hurt, hurtful glance, straight to the bottom, repentance. If the answer is nothing, then ask the next question, which is, how do you feel towards that person in your heart? If it's any kind of negativity, if it's any kind of bitterness, any kind of wishing that they're going to get theirs, that something's going to blow up in their face, that eventually they'll rue the day that they crossed you, straight to the bottom to repentance. If, by some miracle, you get to the place where you can say, I did nothing to cause this problem. I did not respond in any sinful way. And in my heart, all I want for them to do is to repent and receive new life. Guess what? You have godly anger. And you can trust that you've done what God has called you to to bring that person to repentance. And you can move on and let the Holy Spirit take it from there. The problem is, I'm far more concerned with someone else's issues. That i miss how many of those forks in that flowchart, lead to my repentance. I want to make sure that they feel the weight of how they've offended me. I want to make sure that if they don't, I know how to make them feel the weight of how they've offended me. I want them to repent. Then I'll think about repenting. But that's not what Jesus presents us with. What we see in these passages is that I need to focus on my own sin. I need to see my own problems, my own sin affecting this interaction. Maybe I didn't start it, but more often than not, my own sin exacerbates the interaction between me and this other person. Maybe I haven't hurt that person yet, but I probably will. Right? And th- this isn't like self-loathing. This isn't just looking down on ourselves all the time. This is just accepting the fact that we're sinful people who, when we're hurt, tend to hurt other people. And what it does is open our eyes to the reality that God invites us in our anger to experience new life by first repenting, by being changed first, and entering into this relationship in which our anger leads to new life. Mrs. Turpin was impacted by Mary Grace's anger. Literally, the book hit her in the face, and then the girl jumped on top of her in the story. Literally impacted but also internally. This young girl's anger impacted her in a big way and it's reinforced at the end of the story. She's back home, she's out in her field washing off the pigs that she and her husband owned as the sun sets and one of the rays of the sun streaks out across the sky and she has a vision that that ray of light is actually a highway and all of the saints are marching up that highway to meet Jesus. And she sees people like herself and her husband there singing, but they're in the back. And in the front of this parade are the people that she has labeled in her life as freaks and lunatics, white people and black people that she has used racial slurs against in her life. And she is dumbfounded that they would be the ones singing and rejoicing at the front of the parade. And she and her husband and people like them would be at the back, confused. She sees these people that she's looked down on her whole life, rejoicing as they meet Jesus, while she and the like are in the back. It changes her. She goes back into her house hearing crickets in the woods. She thinks they're the voices of those saints at the front of the parade. Now, I I don't think that Flannery O'Connor is encouraging us to hit people we're angry with with books. I don't think that's the point. But I think the story gives us this strange alien example of how anger can lead to new life. Only godly anger can lead to new life. And what we see in these two passages and throughout the scriptures is that the way that we participate in godly anger is by prioritizing reconciliation. And you start it and start with you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the reality that your anger against our sin was quenched by the blood of Jesus. That your anger poured out on him on the cross your perfect son, instead of us. And that in doing so, you welcome us as your perfect children. We have received the righteousness of Christ. We've not done anything to deserve it, not done anything to earn it, but you give it to us. God, would you let that good news change us? Help us to be realistic with our own sin, to see that we have a really big role in much of the conflict of our lives that we should be the one to reach out to those that have hurt us, that we've hurt, to ask for forgiveness, to seek reconciliation. God, would you kill off our sinful anger so that the only anger that remains is against the things, the phrases, and the people that damage life, that lead others away from you. We pray that you would remind us that even though we are angry, Even though we are sinful, you welcome us because of the death and resurrection of your Son. We pray in his name. Amen.